Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd. <laughs> oh, you're not? <laughs> I felt it coming, and I couldn't stop it. <laughs> three seconds, Jennifer. Three seconds in. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Dorowski here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Chihiro Ogino from the 2001 film Spirited Away. The film was written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, and in English, Chihiro was voiced by Davy Chase. And this week we also have a special guest here to help us to discuss this film, and that is my brother, John. Welcome, John. Thank you. Welcome, John. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks. Well, uh, a little bit of trivia. This film has a 97% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I did not take the time to find out who the curmudgeons were, but shame on you. Uh, This was released in Japan in 2001 and in the United States in 2002. And let's see, the Japanese title is Sen to Chihiro no Kamikakushi. Kamikakushi. Sent to Chihiro Kawakakushi, Kawakakuski, <laughs> which refers to a person that disappears from the real world due to having strayed into the world of spirits, which a little bit of a giveaway in the title. Spoiler. Uh, the, <laughs> let's give a caveat here. Uh, we all speak Spanish, not Japanese. Well, no, so, no, we do have a Polish speaker, our producer, Andrew. That's true. So, <laughs> but, forgive me, Andrew. Uh, so if we mispronounce anything in Japanese... <laughs> Just yeah. bear with us. A uh, couple other notes. This is the highest grossing film in Japan. It beat out Titanic. Uh, highest grossing at the time. At the time. It's probably been beaten by something with superheroes, I would guess. I don't know for sure. We can look that up and have that in a future episode. Uh, it won all sorts of awards. Uh, it won the Japan Japanese version of the Academy Awards for Best Film. And it also won here in the States the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. And uh, John found this and, and shared it. The, the advertising little slogan was, for the people who used to be 10 years old and the people who will be 10 years old. So I like that as a slogan. <laughs> yes. uh, while you were talking, I was doing a little research. Okay. Uh, checking the recesses of my mind, yes. as, as they say. <laughs> Uh, the curmudgeons on Rotten Tomatoes are Stephen Himes from Film Snobs. Oh, how David, dare, how dare David, Corne- <laughs> David Cornelius from eFilmCritic.com. David Cornelius, he always is like that. That's so David. <laughs> Rob Blackwelder from Spliced Wire. Cheryl Dawson and Leanne Pallone, or Poloni from TheMovieChicks.com. And David Nusser from Real Film Reviews. Would you like to shout out all the ones who give it a positive <laughs> review now, Todd? <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just, all right, let's there look. are a few of them. <clears throat> all right. Uh, Todd, how familiar are you with Spirited Away? Spirited Away, I the first time I saw Spirited Away, I was at, like a group, you know, a bunch of... It was before I got married. I was hanging out with a bunch of friends uh, there were some girls there that I were uh, that I was uh, interested in pursuing, uh, let's say romantically, and uh, let's just say I was not uh, quite as focused on the movie as maybe some other people may have been the first time they saw Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was beautiful. It's it's a beautiful film. It's it's uh, profoundly imaginative, it, kind of in the way that like a Guillermo del Toro film just feels like 
like other really otherworldly like uh Miyazaki's touching like reaching into a just a completely different realm than where mere mortals dream <laughs> right uh the story for me has always been sort of just kind of s- strange and hard to connect with uh, but i really do like the characters i think it's a beautiful beautiful film so that's kind of that was kind of my initial takeaway from it I, I distinctly remember when Miyazaki like started to get a lot of discussion in America, like in, in back in the days of newspapers reading, uh, <laughs> when Princess Mononoke came out. I remember reading several articles that were talking about this, and I think this was his next film that came, was released in the U.S. after Princess Mononoke. So uh, because that one had been so well received, uh, and also lot, in Japan, <laughs> yeah, and a lot of film critics had had been talking about Princess Mononoke. This one got m- even more press, and so I, I remember being aware of it, but I did not see it until it was out on. On video and uh, similarly I thought it was beautiful but I, I like I almost get lost in the strangeness of it all which I don't mind um, this to me is a good strangeness that, that this film has and I hadn't seen it in years and then I rewatched it just uh, last night in preparation for this and it just sucked me back in into all this like I, I you feel like there's more to this world that Miyazaki knows about than what we get in this film, which I think the best kinds of fantasy do, where it's clear that uh, the creators have mapped out a lot more, and they're just showing you this one slice of it. I could not watch Miyazaki films just all day, every day. It's sort of, I feel like it's better in kind of small doses for me personally, uh, but when I do, it, I really do enjoy it. All right, and John, how, how are you familiar with Spirited Away? This is my favorite movie. Oh, well. <laughs> so when you, when you do it, good choice to have him on as the guest, right? Yeah, so when you when you do your list of favorite movies, this is number one for me. Uh, I saw this in the theaters when it came out. I became a fell in love with it right away. Became a huge fan. I bought a DVD and probably introduced it to my family. So it's probably where Joseph saw it the first had time. Had you been had you been a Miyazaki fan before then? No. I mean, is there I would, there a reason why you saw it in the film in the theaters? Yes, there is. Did it involve a romantic pursuit? No, it involved the exact opposite. <laughs> um, I went and saw it the day I got my first notice that I was not accepted to a master's program. Oh, oh. so you a little bit of solace. Yes. Instead of so, drowning your sorrows in, a, in alcohol, you, you drowned it in Japanese animation. I yes. was trying to imagine what would be the exact opposite of romantic pursuit. <laughs> like, did you see, it was like, rejection. Who could, you, yes. who could you have gone to see this film with? <laughs> So this was uh, distributed by Disney in the United States, largely due to the influence of Pixar. John Lester is a huge Miyazaki fan. Um, right. Arranged a distribution deal to for all the Miyazaki films to be through Disney. And, and John Lasseter, just for any listeners who aren't familiar, is the president of Pixar, correct? President, or he's a higher-up. I don't know for sure if he's the president. He's the, he's the head, Hancho. Yeah. I don't know what the title is, but he's the head of Hancho at he's Pixar. I believe, in, I believe in Spain they would call him the one who cuts the bacalao. Not, not Todd, would, you, would you care to explain? <laughs> <laughs> that's just what they say. The person that's in charge is the one that cuts the bacalao. And bacalao. Bacalao is a, bacalao is a, uh, it's a salted herring. It's a fish. It's a salted preserved fish. And is there a, a strict hierarchy in who's allowed to, uh, <laughs> to serve the bacalao? <laughs> no, to cut the, to cut the bacalao. Oh, well, apparently only the person in charge is allowed to cut the bacalao. So there you go. So the because it was through Disney, there was 
at the time, a lot of commercials on Disney Channel, and I was like, what is this weird film they're talking about? <laughs> and then you saw and, it, and you said, and was, oh, it's still a weird film. <laughs> and so, but it intrigued me enough yeah. that I wanted to see it. Like, okay, there's something magical going on here. I'm very in- intrigued by this. And I had not watched very much anime before. In fact, I uh, was a little wary of it due to some reputations I had in the 90s for what was being brought over. Um, <laughs> and this really hooked me on it and I started watching a lot more and found that there's much more to it as much more qualities out there than I had previously been aware of. All right. Uh, this one, just a quick short synopsis. Oh, sorry. Our producer, Andrew, wants to say something. Honestly, there's not a better ambassador for Japanese animated filmmaking. No, this is, well, this is just... Are you talking great. about the Spirited Away or the Miyazaki? Miyazaki. Or John. <laughs> Miyazaki. Uh, <laughs> or John. <laughs> um... Miyazaki is one of, given the culture in Japan, they don't mind calling people gods more. He's one of the gods of animation in Japan. He's uh, one of the leading figures, and not just an ambassador, but he is just a great filmmaker, period. Yeah, I agree. All right, the uh, quick synopsis for this is that a young Japanese girl named Chihiro goes on a journey very similar to Alice in Wonderland (laughs) uh, and comes out more mature and ready to handle the world. So if that sounds interesting to you, uh, <laughs> you should you should watch Spirited Away. Um, and from here on out, though, spoiler warning, there's going to be a lot more details. And if you've never seen this, you'll come to understand why one of the keywords we've been using to describe this is weird or strange or otherworldly. So, I like otherworldly. Really, more more details. They can expect more details than you just gave them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a, a few. So uh, John's going to give us our long synopsis. Once again, spoiler warnings from here on out. All right. So here's the long synopsis. Ten-year-old Chihiro and her family are moving to a new town. A wrong turn takes them to what her parents believe to be an abandoned amusement park. However, the parents find a still-open food stand and begin eating. Chihiro explores the area, discovering a fully functioning bathhouse. A strange boy finds Chihiro there and tells her she must go back across the river before nightfall, even though it is already dusk. Chihiro finds that her parents have been turned into pigs and that a dried creek bed has become a wide river. The strange boy, named Haku, finds Chihiro and informs her that she has crossed over into the world of the spirits. He tells her in order to save her parents, she must ask for work at the bathhouse from the greedy witch Yubaba. Chihiro winds her way from the boiler room at the basement of the building all the way up to the penthouse to confront Yubaba. Yubaba agrees to take on Chihiro, apparently as a part of a promise to employ anyone who asks for a job. As part of the employment, Yubaba takes Chihiro's name, and she becomes Sen. Uh, I will continue referring to her as Chihiro, though. Uh, Chihiro struggles with work at the bathhouse. One rainy night, she accidentally lets in a shadowy figure, thinking he is a customer, before having to help tend to a stink spirit. Through her perseverance, she is able to clean away the muck and remove all the human pollution, revealing that the stink spirit was really a river spirit. The shadowy figure, called No-Face, and a desperate desire for human contact transfers that desire to gluttony, offering fake gold for food. While everyone rushes to make food for No-Face, Chihiro decides to look for Haku, who works as Yubaba's henchman. She spots him in his dragon form, being attacked by paper birds. When the injured Haku escapes to Yubaba's penthouse, she tries to follow. Dashing through the building, she encounters No-Face. While No-Face really wants Chihiro's attention, she tells him she has to go help a friend. After Chihiro leaves... No-Face turns monstrous and begins eating the bathhouse servants. In order to get to Yubaba's pet house, Chihiro basically climbs the outside of the building. She tries to sneak through the room of Yubaba's infant son, 
but is briefly detained by what is a very large baby. (laughs) (laughs) A giant baby. We can't really stress enough. If you're thinking like, uh, you know, the size of a large watermelon or anything in that realm, you're you're too small. If you ever saw the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, (laughs) Honey, I Blew Up the Baby. Think early stage of Blew Up the Baby. Not not as big as the city yet. But when it was touching the ceiling of the house. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's our touchstone. Oh, man. Um, so Chihiro's also a strangely conversant baby. <laughs> Jiro then finds Haku, who has been injured in a quest to steal a solid gold seal from Yubaba's sister Zeniba. Zeniba magically appears, pushes Yubaba's baby into a mouse, her pet bird into a baby bird, and three rolling heads into the appearance of the baby. <laughs> Chihiro, Haku, the mouse, and the bird escape into the boiler room, where Chihiro uses medicine from the river god to help cure Haku. She then offers to take the gold seal back to Zaniba to remove any curse from Haku. Before leaving, Chihiro is forced by Yubaba to confront No-Face, who has become a bloated, amorphous figure. She gives him the rest of the river spirit's medicine, which forces No-Face to begin vomiting up everything he has consumed, including the servants, and restores him to his original state. Then, taking the train to Zaniba's house, Chihiro and her friends find the witch to be the opposite of her sister warm, loving, and wanting to help people remember the past, whereas Yubaba is greedy, cold, and wants people to forget. Through her visit with Zaniba, Chihiro remembers that she has met Haku before. He is the spirit of the Kohaku River, which she fell into as a child. When she tells this to Haku, his memory is restored and he is freed from Yubaba's control. Returning to the bathhouse, Chihiro faces one more challenge of identifying her parents among a group of pigs. Successfully recognizing that is a trick, and that her parents are not among the group, she and her parents are allowed to leave the world of the spirits. Where the parents have no memory of what had occurred, Jihiro is now ready to face the challenges of, that the move and the new school will bring. Boom, nice job. Well done, because that is a hard movie to summarize. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where do we go from here? I guess uh, one of the first questions I had is to maybe help anyone who hasn't seen this or just to help us kind of organize our thoughts on it. Does this remind you of any other films besides Alice in Wonderland or films or stories or, you know, narratives? It actually really reminds me of um, Pan's Labyrinth, which is okay. a Guillermo del Toro film about the the monkeys fighting in Spain in the, after the Spanish Civil War. And it's also, I think it's uh, as a, See, I feel bad. I feel bad criticizing this spirited away because I re- I, I just want to say up front that I recognize that it is a masterpiece of <laughs> of filmmaking. I think that the story Guillermo del Toro's story is a little bit more I don't know co- coherent or <laughs> a little bit less <laughs> bizarre. But but he he also it it is also a story about a young girl uh, facing a struggling time a, a challenging time. Uh, and she sort of enters a, a, an imaginative kind of dream world, faces crazy, often terrifying uh, monsters, and comes out better on the other end. A little background on the production of this that might help explain some of the lack of cohesiveness. This film was made in 18 months, um, which is prodigious for an animated film. Yes, yeah, pretty quick. Miyazaki is about as close as to an auteur in animation as we get because he not only writes and directs, he does all the storyboards, he oversees the animation directly, but it's also a very organic process. Uh, I have a quote from him uh, where he says, it is not me who makes the film. The film makes itself, and I have no choice but to follow. And so 
he may start the film at one point and in fact it originally began adapting a story a japanese story about a girl who wanders in the world of spirits but then very organically brought began bringing in other elements from his own life uh, from other stories and it became its own thing but it also means that it's not necessarily going to be as cohesive as if he had written a script right at the beginning my question uh which part was from his own life <laughs> um <laughs> well, this gets into what, was it the turnip spirit? Because I really like the turnip spirit, <laughs> the radish spirit, or radish spirit. Radish yeah. spirit. Um, this gets into several of the themes that he often deals with in any of his films. That you'll find topics about feminism, anti-war, about commercialism. I also love a flight because you do love, get that. Yes, in very him. much a romance of flight, but not as strongly in this one. Um, and also about environment, tra- uh, yeah, environmentalism, and also tra- the transition. Uh, from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. Um, so these, some of these themes are much more strong in this one than others, but these are things that often come up in his right. films. As you say, uh, some parts of this made me think of Pinocchio. Uh-huh. Of Pinocchio, like the uh, the parents transforming and well, that's the, also uh, the taskmasters. Uh, also, quoting the Odyssey, where they turn into pigs for eating the food of the gods. There's some elements of Beauty and the Beast, where Haku is uh, very mean most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, but gets transformed through her love. And it's not a romantic love, but, um, friendship. Just, yeah. Just, just pure, a, a caring pure, for another. Yeah. Pure caring for another. Very, that's a very good way to put it. When I think about this, I kind of like, there's these sequences and maybe if we, we take it apart and discuss the sequences and moments, we might be able to, to suss out some of these themes and the way that they're being presented to us. So I guess the opening one would be kind of the, the transition into the spirit world, uh, mm-hmm. which we, we've talked about the hero's journey. This definitely does follow a lot of the, the path of the hero's journey. And so we have this crossing of the the barrier, the threshold from one world into the next. Uh, I found it that it was marked by several barriers. Yes. So when they turn off the, onto the wrong road, first they pass this traditional Japanese gate, right? Um, the red portcullis uh-huh, or whatever right. you call it, where they say, "Oh, that's a, a shrine where they have the home and those little boxes are homes of the spirits." And they come to then they come to this building. Well, they also pass a series of statues on that one. Yes, they pass a series of statues, maybe the guardians. Yeah, they come to this building, which is very interesting. First, it uh, Chihiro sees it very much as alive. She's saying it's breathing. It's trying to bring us in and almost swallow them. Swallow them. When we see the finally see the outside of the building, it seems very much like a traditional Japanese building, but the interior is very reminiscent of a Romanesque church. Mm. Rounded arches, stained glass windows. And as we know, these cathedrals were subliminal, not subliminal, sublime spaces. It was meant to be a transition from earth to a spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. And then coming into the town, I think they cross what is the most ancient type of boundary, a river. In this case, a dried creek bed, but that would be the most ancient type of boundary for marking a journey is crossing a river. And, and then they go again, like there's the, through the street, uh, where all the, the food booths are. And then she passes it once more into, uh, she leaves that street and sees the, the bathhouse. Mm-hmm. And then reaches a bridge. Right. Uh, another bridge, right? right. Yes. Yeah. So there's definitely a we sequence trains. of. I mean, the, yeah. Yeah. It, it, one thing that, so we talked about, when we talked about the hero's journey, we talked about Star Wars and how. Uh, Lucas, when he wrote Star Wars, he set out to write the perfect hero's journey story. Uh, I it, this this film feels like the complete opposite of that. <laughs> uh, 
Like, <clears throat> I, I, I can't imagine Miyazaki sitting down and drawing a circle and saying, okay, now I need her to do right. this, and then I need her to do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and then she will come out on the other end of... of a perfected hero. I don't think he's reading here with a thousand faces while he's writing this film. I, I it feels way more organic, and I think it's part of the reason why the story feels maybe a bit more disjointed. Uh, but in the end, he hits on all the points of the hero's journey. journey. Yeah, and she comes out absolutely. Uh, well, he's Miyazaki. Um, is very well read, uh, not only in Japanese literature. He spent some time in Europe looking at classic children's literature right. to uh, be adapted right. to and anime. that's what he's pulling. I'm not saying he doesn't know The Hero's Journey. I'm just saying that yeah. he he's absorbed enough of it that when he yes, sits exactly. down, he's writing a story. He's not writing The Hero's Journey. Exactly. Right. Yeah, he's uh, pulling from all these traditions. <laughs> and uh, as thankful I am that George Lucas gave us the story of Star Wars, he doesn't... He's not famous for telling organic stories. <laughs> right. <laughs> and just letting them flow forth from I'll him. tell you, the other thing that this um, film reminded me of is I've been studying these uh, prehistoric cave paintings. This, this may seem... May, as you do. As one does. Um, and I was watching a, uh, a documentary film the other day about, about the cave paintings and people trying to figure out how in the world did the first people decide to paint on cave walls and it's not nearly as straightforward as one may think that it is the the initially people thought well they're just rep- they're just pa- they're just painting pictures of representing what they see in in the wild uh, and then they realized actually they're not they're only painting pictures of big mammals that's all they painted uh, initially bison and rhin- right. rhinoceros rhinoceri rhinoceroses and mammoths and uh, reindeer and so then they thought, well, maybe they're maybe they're depicting the hunt. And, but then it turns out that if you look at what these people were eating, they weren't eating any of those animals. They were eating small mammals, not huge mammals. And so then now the running theory is that these people were sending themselves into trances, like uh, drug-induced um, trances, uh, and then and then painting what was for them the world of spirits which was full of giant mammals, apparently. Uh, and they would go deep in the, in the deep recesses of these caves where they would be um, sensory uh, deprivated, uh, deprived. Deprived. <laughs> sensory <laughs> deprived. Deprivado. De- yeah. And, uh, and like there's something about this, uh, this film that feels like that to me. <laughs> like it feels like like riding in a trance or like being in a trance and being in this world of spirits where uh, things don't happen linearly and there isn't always uh, strict cause and effect to things. Anyway, I don't know. That may be totally random, but it's certainly what it feels like. I don't think it's random because, as you said, the, the escape paintings were portraying a world of spirits and this story takes place in the world <laughs> yeah. of spirits. Well, uh, and, and like very much on the Shinto religion. I, I was to say with the like the large mammals, like the one thing that you see in this world of spirits often is things are kind of grotesquely right. large. Mm-hmm. The the baby the the I'm sorry turnip or radish I'm sorry, radish, I'm, spirit. I'm, <laughs> radish spirit uh, and even like the the uh, spirits that are kind of the size of or smaller than uh, Hiro or Chihiro. I mean, uh, they're often still kind of strangely proportionate, right. so they look larger, like their heads are larger and those sorts right. of things. 
So after uh, she cro- crosses the half dozen or maybe even a full dozen <laughs> thresholds <laughs> that we identified and her parents are turned into pigs, uh, the next sequence would be, I would say, is kind of her meeting uh, Haku mm-hmm. and then Haku telling her she needs to go find a job down in the bathhouse, right? That's yes. So she tries to return back to the regular world, but she's she's too late. The river's there. And then she kind of climbs down the side of the bath bathhouse down to the bottom. So I think this is... Uh, looking at that hero's journey, this is the, an interesting thing where the hero's journey is often a call to adventure where they accept some grand quest. Yeah. And in this case, she's really forced into the situation. Right. Where she's reached a point of no return that's not her fault. Um, she has to descend down these... And she's terrified. This she's is, ter- yeah, I she's mean, this ter- is one of the changes you see is she is not... Uh, you know, brave and you know, go get him kind of action hero or anything. She's no, terrified she's, to go down these these steps that are too large for her, and they're facing an open cliff, basically. <laughs> yes, these steps would not pass an OSHA inspection. <laughs> yeah. There's no railing, and actually, by the bottom, they're just like these wedges from <laughs> jutting from the wall. They're not even steps. Seems anymore. like maybe the same designer designed the bathhouse that designed the Death Star. Just saying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Few railings, lots of open spaces you can fall down. Yeah, and she's. Well, she's terrified. She doesn't know what's going on, and she's inching down these stairs until she hits the wrong one. <laughs> I love this. You know, suddenly, she's flying down the stairs like, like you know, when you're falling and you're trying to keep your feet under you, and you're barely doing it, and you're falling forward. <laughs> she runs face first into the wall, and she, it looks so painful in this animation. The way she's going so fast that she can barely keep her feet under her, and then just dead stop facing the wall. I feel like that should be a GIF on the internet for like the cold smack of reality. <laughs> You think you're starting to get the handle on something. <laughs> I really love. Yeah, I really then, love this whole sequence from when she meets Haku. Uh, there's something kind of mysterious about him, and that whole this whole sequence from from the moment she meets Haku until she uh, gets into what Kamaji is that his name to meet Kamaji. I really like. I really like it, and even I like. I like the Kamaji stuff. Like I feel like I was. I felt like. I was following it, you know, like okay, I get this. This is this is a cool story, and then it seems like it kind of leaves the rails for me just shortly after, <laughs> after that. Well, well, down here, I think the important thing is that she, she, she gets noticed because she's nice. Yeah. Her, her kindness is what's significant about her. So Kamaji, the the kind of spider esque man, not a Spider Man, but he's got well, he has six arms. Yeah, six arms, and they're long and gangly. Uh, and he has the soot sprites. Is that what they're called? Yes. Are these the same soot sprites that are in Totoro? By well, you you gotta find that uh, Miyazaki quotes a lot of things. So these soot sprites did appear in Totoro. The appearance of Yubaba with the old lady with the very large nose. That's his traditional old lady uh, <laughs> okay. you see in a lot of his films. Because right. I was watching this with my daughter who loves to watch Totoro, and she's never seen this one. And she's like, those are in Totoro. Yes, so they are um, the same, but same idea. The soot sprites are carrying these big blocks of coal into the furnace, and, and one of them like can't carry the load and is getting squished, and she helps it, and then she starts to help others. And that's what makes Kamaji finally kind of recognize her and say, fine, go go talk to your baba. Well, it's not just the kindness, but the hard work. Right. That she would be able to survive the work. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I think it's interesting when thinking of the layout of the bathhouse, um, and this is a lot of narrative fiction will have this, where down the basement it would be the heart, where it's warm, it's literally where the furnace right. is. Um, and then as you travel up, you get up to the top, which is uh, very cold and clinical. Right. And, you know, where the one in charge is, where the hard work's being done down below. Yeah. All right, there's a couple other sequences, but one that I really want to make sure we hit and we focus on is the uh, the stink spirit slash water <laughs> god or river god. Well, uh, 
Can we just back up for a yeah. second? Yeah, sure. So, looking back at the hero's journey, uh, the, I think the question is, what is her quest? Well, her goal is to get back with her parents and get back to the world of living. The quest is a little different, and this uh, comes up pr- very clearly when she gets the job from Yubaba, because Yubaba magically steals her name. It lifts off the paper, and she is no longer Chihiro. She is Zen. So much to the point that she w- that in the future she almost forgets her that her real name is Chihiro. And so I think that shows the real quest is the quest for identity. Everything that had defined her before has been stripped away. She lost her friends and home in the move. She's lost her parents, and now she's lost her primary identifier, her name. And so with all that stripped away, she has to find out who she really is. And she finds out uh, that she's more than she realized. Exactly. That, you know, this this process makes her stronger. And it's not that the strength wasn't there, it's that she didn't know it was there. And this comes up very clearly with the stink spirit. Yeah. So the uh, she gets the job in the bathhouse, and uh, they, there's this like call, like look out! The one of the worst spirits ever <laughs> to have to try and clean is coming, which is uh, they call a stink spirit. And uh, No Face, who we'll get to in a moment, but No Face has kind of helped her out and given her a couple tokens for special kinds of cleansing waters. But uh, she gets the sink spirit into the bath, and after the first wave of water, like it's done nothing. It looks like this. It's this rolling, rolling, rolling pile of mud. Yes. that's just oozing. Yeah, leaving <laughs> leaving black ooze <laughs> in its wake, and it's in this giant kind of uh, bowl. And she she pours all this water on it, and like nothing smells happens, terrible. But she has these other tokens. Yeah. yeah, she has these other tokens to help clean it, but basically no one else is willing to even try and clean it. Well, she had, also she had been given the job because these spirits hate humans, <laughs> right? Yes, as, as a human, she has been looked down upon and mocked by everyone that's around her. And so she gets some more water going, and she like rolls up her sleeves literally and says, "I'm, I'm going to go scrub this thing." I'm gonna, you know, my job is to clean. As she is pretty much getting buried in mud, <laughs> right? And in that process, she she reaches in and she feels this weird hard object. She calls it a thorn, then a thorn that's in its side. And this causes Yababa to to realize, oh, this isn't a stink spirit. Everyone, we need we need all your help because uh, what she's felt, we find out, is the handle of a bicycle, like a rusty old bicycle that's been in the bottom of a river, kind of thing. And so they tie a rope to it and they start pulling out, and all of this chunk starts to come out of this muddy, you know, blob that's uh, getting getting the bath. I, I can't even begin to describe all the junk <laughs> that they pull out. There's a refrigerator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And as they do this, and as they keep pouring fresh water from the tokens that she got from No Face over it, suddenly uh, they find out that this wasn't a stink spirit. It's a river god that's been so polluted by man that it's had forgotten what it was. Um, and, you know, we mentioned earlier some of the themes that we see in a lot of Miyazaki's films. And this is one of those sequences that clearly has a message about environmentalism, about the impact that the pollution was having and the need to take care of, of the world, that we're, you know, we're doing real, real harm uh, in doing that. I love, uh, I, I, it, this is her, uh, baptism. I mean, this is her, what she's, she's, sure. yeah, Literally. I mean, she, she's yeah. totally filthy. And then when they finally pull all the junk out, uh, he envelops her in water and this water sort of, uh, melts away and she's clean and, and everything's and clean. And he gives her a boon. He gives her a boon. And, uh, it's a little, a little herb cake. <laughs> Something it's a, green. It's a medicine ball. Yeah. It's a little ball of a ball. And hey, doesn't he? He leaves gold for the bathhouse. Well, that's uh, was part of getting cleaned out. Was right. getting all the junk out. Also, brought out all the gold that was in his right, river. right, hidden. 
Uh, and so this is what starts to get her some respect from the, the workers in the bathhouse. I mean, they still call her human <laughs> and these other things, but they start to see that she has more worth than what uh, they had been crediting her, crediting her with. I like, I like the element of work in this film. Like, the, it's just good, old-fashioned work, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mentioned that down in the basement, what kind of gets her noticed in, is her caring for the sprites, and John mentioned, well, no, it's also the hard work, work. And I think those are the two things that we see motivating her and separating her from everyone around her, uh, is that she's not scared of just, again, like, literally, they show her, like, rolling up her sleeves and <laughs> tying up her, her, her pants legs so she can go get dirty and, and do the work that needs to be done. And also, uh, it, it's her caring for Haku and, and for her parents and other things that, that keep her going and prevent her from being distracted in ways that every other character gets distracted. You, might, uh, yeah, you may correct me if I'm not thinking clearly right now, but it seems to me that h- hard work like that That may be one of the most unique things about the film is the way that it celebrates and kind of uh, elevates that aspect of her growth as a character. I think it's pretty rare to see. Can you think of other examples of a character that just need like shows their worth in just in their ability to work hard, like cleaning? I think in particular, looking at this one, it's unique because it's a child doing this hard work where often we see childhood as this magical period where they're not supposed to have any burden or any care. And, uh, the idea that, uh, no, it's good for them to have work, to have chores to do, uh, that, that helps develop the character is, is unique in storytelling. I mean, the, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is Cinderella, but it's handled very differently. Right. Cinderella in every version of Cinderella, I can think of like even the most recent live action one, the one that was directed by Kenneth Branagh, they tried to make a big theme of, uh, you know, loving others and, and working, but it's, it's, which I said are the two main identifiers for Chihiro, but I, it just feels very different than this, where like, even though there's magic all over this place, and we just talked about her being given a boom by the river spirit, that feels very different and very m- much more earned yeah. than the fairy godmother coming in in Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. I think, as I, as I think about it, in this film that's full of uh, the unique, it seems like a rather mundane thing to, to, to add. I don't know. I I just really like it. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Rocky, like training scene or something when she starts cleaning, (laughs) but she's just cleaning. And it's so, it's so mundane. It's so, it's just so of this world. And I really like it. Again, it's one of those things where, um, she has to find out who she is doing things she has never done before. And she finds out, yeah, I can do hard work. I think one thing worth noting is that the work she's doing, she's doing, even though she doesn't understand the environment she's in, she's trying to find something that's at least a little bit familiar. And so she can, she can pick up a lump of coal and throw it somewhere, even though she's surrounded by soot spirits and this crazy spider-like man. And she's just gone down these ridiculous steps and seen a talking frog and, and all these things. And then she has to work in the bathhouse surrounded by giant ducklings and the radish spirit and, and all these things, but she can, she can use a rag. She can clean the floor. Well, and so is that still a remnant of the world she yeah. knew? Like that's, yeah. that's something she can connect with. Yeah. There's some of the, several of these chores she's done are traditional Japanese household yeah. chores. Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch on the no face while we're here since yes. he just helped her. Uh, I mean, I said we might want to go segment by segment, but now I just kind of want to talk about no face for a few minutes. <laughs> That's, well, he's kind of driving the next segment where he starts, like, he wants attention, it seems. Uh, and he starts to offer, as you said, this fool's gold to everyone. And everyone starts to give him, and he becomes, like, this gluttonous 
weird like he changes his shape and everything and he starts eating people um and everyone at the same time as they're scared of him they're all desperate to serve him because he's offering the money and that's everyone but chihiro yes um well i see chihiro or sorry i see no face as a contrast with chihiro where chihiro's discovering who she is no face has lost everything that would define him as an individual he he doesn't have a name yeah (laughs) no face um and when we first see him actually no one else can see him it's only Chihiro that can see him. Right. And so he has no identity. And so there's, um, he desperately wants this human contact. Well, uh, any contact, not just yeah. human contact. Well, yes, any contact. And Chihiro is the first one to give it to him. And then he, because he doesn't understand, he transfers it to this greed and gluttony. Right. So he, he helped Chihiro and she thanked him. And But the difference is Chihiro, as we said, is, is kind of motivated by trying to do her work and by kindness. Uh, and so helping her was, uh, you know, helping to clean the the river God. Uh, but then when he tries to form a similar connection with everyone else that is motivated by greed, he tries to do that by offering them money and it doesn't, you know, they don't thank him. They just take the money and, and it, it becomes this greed cycle, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's, uh, trying to fill this void and by using greed and gluttony, it just gets more, he gets just more and more empty. Right. And for me, one of the most interesting things is the fact that everyone does still serve him, even as they're talking about, like, oh, I don't want to get eaten. You know, I don't, I well, don't want to. Well, the first sequence is he's just giving out money, and so everyone wants to serve him because they can get all this gold. Yeah. And then when he starts going on the rampage and he's a couple of servants, then everyone's scared, and they well, keep eating, keep feeding him so they don't eat them. Yeah. Uh, but then it's in this uh, time when No Face has kind of become the central figure within the bathhouse that all of the bathhouses revolving around this. She sees a dragon and somehow she knows that's Haku. Like well, earlier she had, she saw, she had seen, seen him the, before and, and made a connection. Then she's seen a dragon and she's like, Oh, maybe that's Haku because I, it, it was a little odd. Like it yeah. seemed like a jump in logic for her, but she sees the dragon that's being attacked and she sees that it's bleeding. And all she wants to do is help Haku. And so while everyone else is serving no face and he's giving out gold and all these other things, she completely ignores him, even though she's was the only one who could see him before. And, uh, she kind of would talk to him a little bit when no one else was at this point. She says, I need to go by you. I need, you know, I need yeah. to go help Haku. She's yeah, so minded on that. No face really wants Sen's attention. Chihiro's attention. Uh, he doesn't really care about everybody else. And so when she rejects him, and says, no, I have to go with my friend. That's when he starts on that rampage. I think it's cool how she thanks him. And I think that's another one of her defining mm-hmm. characteristics as a character uh, is her gratitude. She's always thankful to people that help her. Well, this also plays into an aspect of Japanese culture where uh, thanking people is very traditional. But it also, I think you're right, shows that she's, she's sincere about her gratitude. Yeah. Because even when she's telling uh, No Face that you know she doesn't want the money or anything, she still says thank you. It doesn't she say thank you? But I need to yeah. go do this other. I need to go help Haku. And even going to help Haku is a form of that, where he had helped her before, and so she wants to help him now as a form of gratitude. That's part of the motivation right. there. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just thinking of the next. Yeah, sentence. you want to take you want to <laughs> take that on. 
Uh, so after she she does go by No Face, uh, and No Face kind of continues on this rampage, but while that's happening, she goes, uh, and Haku's gone upstairs. So she runs upstairs to try and find him, and this is when we meet the... Uh, we've well, seen the grotesque baby foot, like uh, the strangely large baby foot before, but now we actually see the baby. If, if I may, there's a sequence just before that where she's getting up the building. This is a very good contrast of show how she's developed as a character, which is what makes her a strong protagonist. Is we can see that there's a clear difference from how she is at the beginning of the film and how she right. is at the end. right. And so uh, we've mentioned that when she's going down the stairs, she's very scared, uh, even though it's, it's just stairs. But she's, you know, at first just very slowly going, crawling down them, basically, uh, trying to get to the bottom. And now to go to try and help Haku, she decides to run along a rickety <laughs> pipe. <laughs> that, that starts to fall out from under her, but she still keeps going. Yeah. And-, and so you can see how this she has developed this courage that was and bravery that was not there before. Which allows right. her to and now one. ascend, right? Initially, it's yes. a descent. Yes. She's ascending. And now it's ascent. And she's scared of the descent, and now she's bravely facing the ascent because she's doing it in the service right. of someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's ascending to try and help Haku, and in this process she enters this nursery like has very large baby <laughs> toys and uh she hears yeah is, what's the name yababa 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 uh she hears yababa coming so she dives into this giant pile of pillows and we find out that there underneath this giant mound of pillows there's a baby hanging out there and the baby just grabs onto her and says creepy weird things <laughs> play with me play with me or i will break your arm yes. <laughs> whoa <laughs> Uh, but then at the same time, the baby also says something about being scared of germs. And so um, Chihiro like, shows the blood that she has from Haku because she, she tried to help Haku before he flew up to the top of the building. And she has some, some of his blood. And she's like, these are germs. <laughs> so you don't want to touch me because I have germs. And the baby freaks out. And uh, it's in this process of now she goes in and she finds Haku uh, that Yababa's twin sister, who at first we kind of... It, it's she's, weird that we later on find out that she's the opposite of Yababa and is good. She's pretty mean in this Because in this sequence, she is worse than Yababa um, in the way she, that she talks and acts and, and our first impression of her. Um, and she, like John said in the summary, weird things happen. There's these three rolling heads that get turned into the giant baby. The giant baby gets turned into a rat. Uh, there's a flying bird that gets turned into this kind of small uh, insect-sized bird kind of thing. And then Haku uh, and and Chihiro end up going down these tunnels back down into the heart of the bathhouse. Where, back, in, back into the boiler room. Into the boiler room. And it's there that she's able to force Haku and kind of... A, a, I don't know how to describe the scene where she shoves the uh, the medicine ball that she got from the river god into his throat and holds his mouth closed, like you know, if you're giving a dog medicine and yeah. it's trying right. to spit it out. She she grabs her hand down <laughs> yeah. the dragon's throat uh-huh. and then pulls and, it and out. You're, and you're <laughs> seeing these sharp teeth all around, like when she's then, opening it, she's forcing his mouth open, and all you can see are the sharp teeth that she's got her fingers around. <laughs> and then pulls it out fast enough that she could then hold the mouth closed so he swallows this. And it's it's a very violent healing <laughs> uh, scene that happens there. Uh, and he spits out this slug that she's this black slug that she stumps, and you find out that that was uh, the way that Yababa was was forcing him to work for her. It was this black slug that was inside of him, and he also spit out this golden seal that she decides that one reason Haku was attacked is because he took the seal from Yababa's sister, so she's going to take it back so that Yababa's sister won't try and hurt him anymore. And this is where we get the train that Todd mentioned. We get uh, you know after all the other thresholds and travels and journeys that we've had is that she takes this train to visit Yababa's sister. Yeah, so uh, she, on her way to there, she has to go confront No Face and give her the rest of that mess, and which returns him back to his previous state. And she invites him to go with, yes, <laughs> with her. I, I love the train sequence. This is uh, I, I enjoyed the film before. This is probably the moment where I fell in love with it, 
because it, there had been a huge storm the night before, so uh, the train tracks are covered in water. So it looks like the train's traveling over water. And they have this beautiful, melancholy score. I do want to Yeah, the music in this yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, I want to call it the composer Joe Hisashi, who is uh, Miyazaki's usual composer. He's, I believe, composed everything, all his films. But this beautiful, melancholy score with this train traveling over water... Um, and it's just this kind of lonely feeling of loneliness and isolation. And like on the train with her are these shadowy figures that yeah, none of them have are fully formed. But they're they're just acting like normal people. They're just getting up, off on their stops. And um, so it's uh, you know kind of like in real life where you don't acknowledge the people on the train. You know they're there, but you don't acknowledge them as individuals. They're just these shadows that mm-hmm. exist mm-hmm. on when you're traveling. And then uh, we get to Swamp Bottom. Where, is that the name of her? Yes, that's the, the stop she has to get off on for, to get to Zaniva's place. And so this is kind of at the, not the not the not necessarily the bottom of the hero cycle, but this is where where she's going to get her final... It's a uh, Dagobah? What do we call that? Dagobah? Kind of complete that quest. Swamp Bottom? Is that Dagobah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, she's... Yeah, uh, the... Yababa's sister certainly acts as kind of a mentor to her and kind of mm-hmm. coaches her up in a way that uh, even though Haku had kind of told her what she needed to do and um, who's the name of the other, the, the human older girl that kind of helps her some. Lynn. Lynn. Mm-hmm. Lynn. Um, none of them are really mentor figures to her, yeah. even if they do kind of direct her. And uh, of all the characters that, that we meet, I would say Yababa's sister, whose name is... is Zaniba. Zaniba. Zaniba is probably the most... Of kind of the wizened mentor type of figure, and this is another part of that just makes you love this film. Where uh, we had seen all these weird, otherworldly things, and now we get this just moment of whimsy where this lamp comes hopping along <laughs> on one arm. Yeah, just a foot, the, kind of, an, and that ends in an arm that's holding it up. It's just like one foot leg and, that turns into an arm that's holding a lamp. Yeah, and it's. Uh, it doesn't look like an actual arm. It's just this black line. So it's kind of like Mickey Mouse. He's got a white glove yeah. and a black arm. And it's just attached to the lamp and hopping along. <laughs> and it's just this wonderful moment of whimsy. And that's one that really, to me, reminds me of Alice in Wonderland. Yes. That, that kind of... Um, how, how do you want to describe the, the level of fantastic, I guess? Um, the, the It's not abstract, but it's... Oh, what's the word? There's, Surreal? I, yeah, maybe surreal. Surreal. The, the the surreality of that moment reminds me of things like the Cheshire Cat in Alice yeah. in Wonderland. And so when we finally meet Zaniba, very like you said, a very different character than when we the, <laughs> the one that had appeared earlier. Yeah, she was rather cruel when she first appeared, but now she's very warm and inviting and wants to help everybody. And so she helps Chihiro remember. That she had met Haku before, and and to also remember her own name again. Yes, I think Zaniba. Zaniba and Yubaba are, they intrigue me because Yubaba is supposed to be really bad, but she has moments where she's actually uh, pretty great when they're cleaning up the, the stinky god, the stink god. She's totally in control and getting everybody to work together. It's obvious that she loves her baby. Uh, so she's not like, she's not pure evil. Uh, just as Zaniba, I think, is not exactly pure good. Well, she does love her baby. No one is winning parent of the year <laughs> in this movie. Um, uh, Chihiro's parents aren't, aren't, aren't great examples of parenthood, and nor is 
uh, Yubaba. Uh, yeah, if the parents had just listened to Chihiro at the beginning, they would have not been but, turned into pigs. Um, I think this shows in the scene just after Chihiro and No-Face had left the bathhouse. Yubaba is recovering after being completely covered in vomit by No-Face. <laughs> she is upstairs recovering. And uh, Haku appears and says, uh, something valuable has been taken from you, and you don't even realize it. And the first thing she looks to is her gold. And the second thing is her child. Yeah. yeah. Chihiro, uh, after she remembers her name and she remembers that she knows Haku, uh, she she returns and Yababa has agreed with Haku that she's going to let Chihiro go, but she says Chihiro has to pass one final test. And this is one of those... Uh, tests that you know John already described. It's it's the trick. Like uh, there's this field of pigs, or all these pigs are lined up, and she knows her parents have been turned into pigs, and she's supposed to find her parents, but they're not even there. And she just looks them over, and uh, it's not really clear how she knows, but she just does know that her parents are not in this. I don't know if it's a distrust of your Baba. Um, I don't. I don't. It's not clear how she knows, but we just know that it's become clear to her that her parents are there. So I, the some of the ways I thought about it is, does she know that your Baba would try and trick her? Or is it just the bond that she has with her parents? And I'm not sure what how we're supposed to read that. Does she remember what her parents look like as pigs? <laughs> I I don't know. Um, yeah, it's like a. It, it, yeah, it's not. Are clear. you the kind of person who would, <laughs> would place the wine in front of me, or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can clearly not choose the pig in but front then, of me. Then uh, she. The finale is that she and her parents are able to finally leave the spirit world, and she's the only one who remembers it, and she's the one that's most changed from it. Uh, And we see those moments change kind of happen throughout, but it's, uh, you know, that that end, it's one of those classic things, like the traumatic things happen to the loved ones, and the loved one saves them, and then suddenly they're not able to remember it. Uh, And we we see that play out in a lot of stories, and I always... I'm always a little torn. Like, I wonder what it would be like for the parents to remember that they were turned into pigs and their daughter saved them. Like, would that change their relationship with their daughter? Well, <laughs> well, hopefully it would change the parents some. They, they'd also come out better for the experience. Yeah, but this. So, I, I'd like to talk about the parents. I think that it's. I think it's really interesting. It's the parents that draw her into this initially. She's totally reticent. She doesn't want to go in to the into the tunnel at first. And it's her parents, and it's also this, like, the wind. Like, there's something... Well, she senses that there's something off about this place. Where right, but, but the wind is blowing her into the tunnel, right? And her parents are her parents are saying, come on, come on, come on. And they're yeah, leaving yeah. her behind, and she's running to catch up to them. Her parents seem oblivious to... Well, and even as they're seeing things like the, the one food cart in this place that looks like a completely abandoned uh, amusement park, which, which is what they think it is, they see one food cart with food on it, and they're like so tempted by it that they don't sense any of the strangeness that uh, Chihiro has been sensing from the very beginning. It's the, uh, you know, another thing that we see in stories often is the children are the ones who still have a sense of wonder and magic about them. And, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a lack of cynicism or a lack of jaded, you becoming jaded through life, that the children see things that their parents are missing. And that's definitely quite apparent at the beginning exactly. of the Exactly. But, but without that obliviousness on the part of the parents, none of this story happens and Chihiro never changes. I mean, the whole, her whole journey is dependent on the fact that her parents are oblivious to the magic and wonder of right, this place. Right. And I, I don't know, part of me wonders, what, what does this film tell me about being a parent? And I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but part, part of it seems to maybe be, I, I don't know, like 
just keep kind of doing i don't know if it's like keep doing what you're doing or if it's let your children experience the wonder and magic and like don't get in their way or i don't know one of my uh favorite books that i've read recently is called the dangerous animals cub by steven tabulowski and he talks about when he was a kid and kind of the crazy adventures he got into and then he uh, he bookends that chapter by talking about being on a vacation with his children and one of them, like they've been playing out in the backyard or whatever. And one of them runs up and says, dad, we see a snake. And he said, that was my doorway. Like that was my invitation back into the world of childhood. And I just, I dropped what I was doing and I ran. Like I needed to be in that magical way of children. When you find something that's, you know, new and different, it's just so exciting that you want to shout out to the world that there's something you've never seen before here. And, and so even though this film is, isn't, you know, showing that like the, the parents are being quite, you know, oblivious to the things around them, I would say part of what you can maybe pull is rather than, uh, you know, ignoring your child or, or being oblivious to the magic around you, look for those chances where your child is inviting you back into their world. Well, this goes back to that advertising line um, for those who were once 10 years old and those who are, will be 10 years old. And it's not just an invitation to experience the Chihiro's world and her journey, which again, an invitation of Hero's journey. We're all constantly going through those cycles as well, but it's also an invitation to remember that sense of wonder and otherworldliness that existed as a child um, to try and remember what it was like to be 10 years old again. All right. Well, any final thoughts, Todd? So my final thought is this. I, I don't, sometimes I feel like I don't have the, the childlike wonder and the ability to uh, enter into my children's imaginative world that some parents have. And I wish I wish that I did, but it's just not really my strong point. Uh, but there's something comforting in in that these parents what all they're trying to do is just move. Like they're just trying to do what they need to do. And even even though they're not at, uh, down, you know, on their knees playing make believe with their daughter, the daughter gets the opportunity to grow even though the parents aren't, I don't know, engaged in that imaginative world. I mean, they, they do have a sense of adventure. They, they're the ones that pull her into the tunnel. So I guess there's something there. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. but Well, I think that it um, might not be the case of a parent trying to understand a child, but a child trying to understand, coming to a better understanding of their parents as well. Yeah. As mature as Chihiro matures, she understands a little bit more about what her parents have, are going through as well. Because actually, uh, just you saying that made me think there are moments where, so at the start, the parents are like wanting to go explore and they, they have their own kind of tasks that they want to do. And Chihiro's like, we, we need to do this. Like, let's stop. Let's just go back to the car. Let's do these other things. And the parents kind of ignore her. And she does a similar thing when she's ready to go and help Haku. Like she's so single-mindedly focused on that that she ignores what other people are asking her to do. So we do see, I think a parallel there, like John was just saying, maybe is what would cause her in reflection to maybe see a little more of her parents and herself or understand a little bit better. Yeah. I guess there's just hope for, I, I guess there's hope for a parent like me who isn't like, I just, I just don't live in that kind of imaginary world. But if you give your, give your children an opportunity to have adventures, whether that's like, let's go to the park or let's go for a drive or something like that. Just get them out. And, and because they're children and because they're full of magic, they'll find a way. 
and and you don't have to do amazing amazing things as a parent you just have to give them an opportunity get them like get them started on the road and they'll do the rest on their own so start doing urban spelunking into abandoned yes abandoned regions of your cities <laughs> that's the best <laughs> let the wonder that, happen yes that's the that's the big takeaway go, uh, go explore abandoned buildings <laughs> Uh, all right, John, real quick. Uh, final thing we like to do for guests is, uh, you get to invite, uh, three to five people, characters, uh, favorite characters to a dinner party. Who do you want to have with you at your, uh, you, you've received the wish from a genie that you can have any guests in literature or film history or television history. Who are you inviting? I should have remembered that this was coming in. Yeah, so any, any three to five. Could you rephrase that one more way, Joseph? <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, so the, the scenario is dinner. Your quest, three to five guests. Fictional. Okay. So I would allow you to choose Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, but not Abraham Lincoln. Let's <laughs> see, I would go Link from the Legend of Zelda games. Wow. Okay. Porco Rosso. Another Miyazaki. Film. He is a pig who flies airplanes. So two <laughs> themes yes. that we've touched on: flight and pigs. Bone from, uh, from the, the comic series Smith Bone. comic book series Bone. Yes. Would you like to elaborate on any of those? What? Why, why Link? Link? Why the pit flying pig? And why the guy with the big nose? Todd, it's not just a flying pig. It's a pig that flies a biplane. <laughs> no, it's an airplane. Is it an airplane? It's, it's a seaplane. Oh, for some reason, I had in my head that it's it was a biplane. It's not no, a biplane. Okay. No, one, of the, one of the other guys play, flies a biplane. Forgive me. I'm yes. sorry. I love the Legend of Zelda games. <laughs> so, and they're, they're just kind of, like with these three, You've you have put Link through a lot, so you feel like you owe him. Dinner, right? <laughs> <laughs> you killed him. You, you, you killed him dozens of hundreds of times. He deserves dinner. <laughs> um, well, really, all, all three of these are adventurers in different ways. So Link, and that you know, quasi medieval setting, the high fantasy setting. Um, you have Porco Rosso, who, for Miyazaki, was him trying to portray the epitome of cool. And so you have this uh, kind of Indiana Jones-esque hero. That's uh, big. Yeah, just happens to have the face of a pig. And Phonebone, who's one of those reluctant heroes, but is, uh, what I like about him is he's very literary. He loves Moby Dick and bores everyone by <laughs> trying to tell Moby Dick. <laughs> and so I think getting those three together would be make for a fascinating conversation about adventuring. All right. Well, on that note, that wraps up this episode of the Protagonist Podcast. Thank you, John, for coming on as a guest, and thank you for listening. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to the Protagonist in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. And you can also find links to everything that we've talked about and our previous episodes at protagonistpodcast.com. And there you can also leave us feedback. And if you click on the support link, you could donate some money to help keep this podcast going. And we would gladly allow you to do that uh, you can reach all of us on twitter i am at jaderowski our producer andrew's at underscore uh, andrew underscore Dorowski, and todd is at todd k mac and please like our facebook fan page called protagonist pat uh podcast not the podcast that is something else we love any comments corrections or interaction or feedback of any sort so thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week to talk about another great character and another great story so long so long Please listen to me. <laughs> I want to say one more thing. Um, can you hear me?